Today's readings speak of end times. From Daniel's vision of anguish to Jesus' prediction that the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed, not one stone left upon another. Which proved to be true in the year 70, when the Romans destroyed it in the midst of Jewish revolts. But I have to say, Apocalypse was so much simpler when I was growing up. In the 1970s, it centered on the late great planet Earth, that book by Hal Lindsey that saw the fulfillment of prophecies from the book of Revelation all around us in earthquakes, communism, the growth of a European economic community, all adding up to the end times. In hindsight, of course, we now see how naive Hal Lindsey and his followers really were. After all, many more signs of the apocalypse were yet to come. Disco music, for example. (laughs) And apocalypse was so much clearer in the 1970s. It seemed easier to define good and evil, though really it was about as difficult as it is now. But I was a kid then, and I didn't know any better. I was also a devout little Roman Catholic boy. So when those Omen movies came on TV, I worried about who the Antichrist might be. I remember playing with my cousins one day, and they insisted we check one another's hair to see whether the number 666 was emblazoned on our scalp. One of my cousins had actually inked the number into his little brother's hairline. When I saw it, I ran out of the room. But apocalypse has always been scary. In today's passage from Mark's Gospel, the vision of tribulations to come includes war, famine, natural disaster, and the tearing of the social fabric. Chapter 13 of Mark is sometimes called the Little Apocalypse because it's only 37 verses long. Well, it may be short, but there is nothing little about an apocalypse. The chapter begins with one of the disciples marveling at the temple's size and wanting to impress Jesus with his perceptiveness. He says, Teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. And Jesus gently shuts him down. It won't last. Later, he sits with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, gazing back at the temple and spins a frightening tale of the devastation to come. As readers and hearers of this text, today, it's hard not to feel an icy tingle crawl up our spine. We can't help but interpolate his words into our own day, wondering whether the last days aren't occurring now. You may have noticed that it's looking a little like apocalypse out there. Up in San Francisco, the ash from the campfire near Paradise continues to fill the air, all but blocking views of the city's skyline. One can only imagine the devastation the people who had to flee their homes must feel, or the grief of those who've lost loved ones. And we are now up to 76 dead, with over 1,200 still missing. At least seven people trying to flee the fires in their cars were caught by the flames and incinerated inside their vehicles. The landscape of paradise 
is post-apocalyptic. And then there's our homegrown terrorism, mass shootings that seem to happen weekly. The dead are barely laid to rest at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh when we hear of 12 more killed at the borderline bar and grill in Thousand Oaks, some of whom had fled a sniper just one year ago in Las Vegas. And we wonder what next week will bring. A little girl in Yemen, whose emaciated photo in the New York Times caused an outpouring of concern, died of starvation. Another casualty in the Saudi-led war. And then there's the black off-duty security officer in a suburb of Chicago, Jamel Roberson, who had just subdued an active shooter at a bar, saving the lives of many in that place, only to have the police come in see a black man with a gun holding down a white man on the floor and shoot him dead. And that's all just within the last few weeks. Apocalypse is not so clear and simple anymore. It is multifaceted and vivid. When I was a kid, it was abstract, a concept. Now, it feels like it's taking shape. What do we do? How do we meet these latest catastrophes with eyes open and hearts full rather than closed and emptied? How can we counteract the tsunami of wickedness and disaster? Well, first and foremost, don't stop caring. Try not to let yourself become desensitized to the tragedies that befall us. Disaster fatigue is a real thing. We get tired and worn out from the constant flow of sorrowful news emanating from around the world. Try to keep praying for people in the latest shooting, natural disaster, or war. Give when you can to organizations that provide relief and compassion. Secondly, mourn for the dead. Take that extra 30 seconds of prayer time to name the people or places of loss in the past week. When you name them, you honor their preciousness. In God's sight, every single person on this earth matters, from the starving Yemeni child to the elderly couple overwhelmed by fire in their car. This can be exhausting, I know, but it's important. Then, take a break. Enjoy life. Look around you and remind yourself how blessed you are. Giving thanks is not just for a holiday in November. A parishioner I visited on Friday who is struggling with back pain after a fall told me how even in her pain, she tries to remember how good she has it compared to most people on this planet. Tell those you care about that you love them. Then, refreshed and renewed, go back to praying and to mourning. Try to conjure up the faces of strangers in this world who are suffering. And if you can, see them in your mind's eye. Take their hand in yours and say, we belong to each other. Over and over like a mantra until maybe one day it becomes second nature. We belong to each other. Create that bond in your heart 
with strangers that will give you strength to stand up for the oppressed, the suffering, the forgotten. Then, one day, do something about it. Because the only way to survive an apocalypse, to remain alive through these end times until the masters return, is to do like they do on zombie shows, like The Walking Dead. Band together and help one another. Build relationships and risk doing acts of kindness and generosity and selflessness. Don't be alarmed. Love extravagantly. And remain hopeful of salvation. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. If we stay in a place of fear, of alarm, of being scared, of closing our eyes, we miss Jesus' point. He's telling us that there's more than what we see around us. God's vision is infinitely larger than ours, and in God's eye, everything is going to be all right in some larger eternal way. The Greek word apocalypse means revelation or unveiling. What Jesus unveiled to his disciples as they gazed from the Mount of Olives to the temple? What Mark's gospel uncovered to those early Christian hearers of it living through the Jewish revolt of the first century? And what scripture unveils to us today, even as we reel from new disasters and wars, is that a capital T truth exists that is greater than all the hardship we see around us that eventually, if we hold tight through these labor pangs, this world's despair, we will see the birth of new life, a new age. Which is so hard to believe. But for me, it is either believe that, or get swallowed up in the maw of chaos and despair. And while this ultimate truth may not explain every single tragedy in human history, it will finally resolve all our suffering into the greater reality of God's eternal love. Human reality is nestled into the embrace of that great love. I just pray that the eyes of our faith can remain open to the possibility of a greater mystery. When I see people laying flowers or teddy bears at the sites of tragedy, I see those tokens for what they are, emblems of faith, symbols of connection and caring, offerings at the altars of destruction. They are a promise on the part of the giver that what happened there mattered to them and that each life lost in that spot was precious. And isn't that a silly thing to do? To go spend our hard-earned money on flowers and bears only to leave them on some sidewalk? But I don't care. Because every petal, every flower stems from a deep and unconscious belief that we belong to each other. And that deep connection, grounded in our faith, is the only thing that will save us. I close with a few stanzas of a poem by G.K. Chesterton called The End of Fear. 
Though the whole heaven be one-eyed with the moon, though the dead landscape seem a thing possessed, yet I go singing through that land oppressed as one that singeth through the flowers of June. No more with forest fingers crawling free or dark flint wall that seems a wall of eyes shall evil break my soul with mysteries of some world poison maddening bush and tree. Don't despair. Keep praying. Keep mourning. Give thanks. Connect and act. Together with Christ, may we midwife this world into a new age. Amen.